You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning. Um, Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us this morning, and we ask now that you'd bless the preaching of your word, that you'd help us to understand uh, this passage, and that in understanding it, we would have a deeper and richer and fuller understanding of how you've made us and what the mission of the church is and how you've ordered and structured it for our good and your glory. So be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, we focused on Paul's instructions about one of two offices in the church, the uh, noble task, we said, of pastoral ministry. Pastors uh, are overseers, it's another word for it, or elders. And the task of pastors, overseers, and elders is to shep- is shepherd-like and priest-like. Pastors are called to oversee and care for the flock of God by teaching the word of God with his authority, zealously guarding the doctrine and worship of the church like Levites did and Phineas did, And three, organizing and mobilizing the church for mission, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Pastors must be above reproach, faithful to their wives, sober-minded, self-controlled, level-headed, wise, hospitable, skillful in teaching, not enslaved to alcohol, not greedy, not violent, not quarrelsome, but gentle because their task will call them to both tenderly care for sheep and violently resist wolves. Pastors must be good leaders in their home, mature and tested in the faith, and have a good reputation among outsiders. That's pastors, that was verses one to seven. This week we're gonna explore the other office of the church, deacon. Uh, But before we do that, I want to highlight a connection between 1 Timothy 2, which Pastor David preached a couple weeks ago, 1 Timothy 3, which is where we are now, and the relationship between nature and scripture and culture that we talked about way back in the very first sermon of this series. So we're going to try to pull some threads together here for a minute. So I'm going to give a a very carefully worded statement that the pastors have been working on over the last couple of weeks as we try to think through what it means to put God's house in order. And so think with me about this summary statement. The structuring and ordering of God's household, the church, is based on a wise and prudent application of God's design and creation as expressed and clarified by the word of God and is designed to both protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. I'm gonna say it again. The structuring and ordering of God's household the church, is based on a wise and prudent application of God's design in creation as expressed and clarified in the word of God and is designed to both protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. Now that sentence has two key elements in it in terms of how God's church, his house, is structured. It has a basis, which we've been exploring for the last few weeks, and it has a purpose, 
which we're going to explore more in the coming weeks. And so look at those three elements again of the basis or foundation. Okay, the, this is what's underneath. This is what God's house is built on. Number one is, I said, a wise and prudent application. That's culture. That's what, way back in the first sermon, that's what we mean by culture. That's what we do. We wisely and prudently try to apply. Now, what are we applying? God's design in creation. That's nature. That's the way God has made the world. And then expressed and clarified in the word of God, that's scripture. So there they are. Culture is based on, is an application of nature, God's design in, in nature, and scripture. God has built the world in a particular way, creating men and women for his mission, but doing so in a particular order. This was a few weeks ago with Pastor Jonathan, and with a mutual dependence. We need each other. This design in creation is a pattern. And the pattern is clarified and expressed in various ways throughout the Bible as biblical authors apply that creation pattern in a variety of circumstances. We saw one of them two weeks ago in 1 Timothy 2. Paul appeals directly to the order of creation. Adam was made first and then Eve and to the subversion of God's order and creation in the fall, Eve was deceived and not Adam, and he appeals to this in order to explain why those who teach and exercise authority in the church must be men. So the order of creation is the pattern for Paul's exhortation and the structuring of the church in the Bible, and then all of that, God's design and creation, the application that the Bible authors give, expressed and clarified in Scripture, all of that becomes the basis for our own efforts to structure the church today in our own context. That's the summary statement. And I'm stressing that, I'm, I'm belaboring it, um, because one of the things that we're attempting to do in this series is to communicate not only what the Bible teaches, but the rationale and logic underneath it. Like we don't just want to come to you and say, here's the verse, deal with it. Right? We don't just want to say, just obey. Now, there's something good about just obeying, even if you don't understand why. Okay, kids have to learn this, right? I don't, why, why? Because I said so, right? That's a good reason for children to obey their parents and it's a good reason for Christians to obey God. But, but there's, there's deeper reasons. We want to follow the biblical logic. We want you to understand the reasons beneath the rules. Or to put it negatively, flip it, flip it around, okay? We don't want to be like churches that say things like this. We don't know why God chose men as his instruments of, uh, to lead in the home and in the church. We don't know why. The reasons are just totally a mystery to us. Why one and not the other? Why this way, not that way? But it's in the Bible, so we're just going to obey the rules and submit to Scripture, but we don't really understand the reasons. We don't want to be like that. There are purposes of God in the world that are mysterious to us. There are things that God does that we just will not know now and may not know ever. And then there are things, uh, when it comes to the ordering and structuring of the home and the church and the relationships between men and women, God has not left us in the dark. 
And so we want to press into the reasons so that we don't miss God's goodness. That's, that's what this is about. If we treat biblical commands as arbitrary, as God flipping a coin and deciding this way, not that way, then we're going to miss out on the blessing of understanding his wisdom and goodness in how he made the world. So again, if you don't understand why, if this still doesn't make sense, why we do it the way we do it, why are our pastors only men, that's okay. You don't have to understand the why in order to obey the what. But we really want, we really want all of us in this church to understand and love God's reasons and not merely to obey because he said so. All right, that's preface. Now let's turn to deacons, okay? Here's structure again, very simple. What is the diaconal task? We talked about pastoral tasks. Now what's the diaconal task? Two, what are the qualifications for that office? And three, this is an addition from last time, what's up with verse 11? How do we understand chapter three, verse 11, and the reference to wives or women in the passage? Because there's nothing like that in verses one to seven. So let's begin with the task. The word deacon in the Bible is just the word for servant, okay? Um, it is a very broad uh, word, a very broad meaning in the ancient world and in the scriptures. For example, it could refer to um, an intermediary or an agent, like someone who acts on behalf of another. That's what, it, I, if, I, if I want you to do something on my behalf, you're my deacon. It could refer to an assistant, someone who helps a superior in a particular task. So if I'm your boss and you're helping me to do something, you're my deacon. It could even be more narrowly referred to a domestic servant of some kind, like a butler. In the New Testament, it's often translated in your Bible as the word servant, as in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you must be a deacon. The greatest among you must be a servant, the last of all, and the deacon of all. Or sometimes it's translated as minister, usually when it refers to anyone engaged in Christian ministry, like the apostles. They're ministers of the new covenant. Second, they're deacons of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul is a deacon of the gospel, Ephesians 3, 7. Tychicus and Epaphras, these are missionaries, are deacons of Christ. So there's this broadest sense in which deacon could just be all of us because all of us are supposed to be last of all and the deacon of all. Or it could refer more narrowly to anyone engaged in sort of full-time vocational ministry, missionary, pastor, deacon, whatever. And then there's this narrowest sense, which is what we find here in 1 Timothy, where it's a subset of church officers, a subset of ministers. It's an office in the church. And this is what seems to be going on in 1 Timothy 3. And also in Philippians 1, when Paul says he writes to the overseers and deacons. Now, in this narrower sense, some uh, in the history of the church have thought deacons only do practical ministry in the church, meaning things like caring for the poor, caring for widows, managing finances, things like that. And that's usually, the reason they think that, it's usually based on the pattern for deacons that's established in the book of Acts, Acts 6 where the apostles, who were like the authoritative teachers in the church at the time, appoint seven men to address a practical issue, food distribution for widows, so that the apostles can maintain their focus on preaching and the word. Okay? 
And so that based on that pattern and then based on the fact that when we read the qualifications, it's necessary for pastors to be skillful to teach, but it's not necessary for deacons to be skillful to teach. That's not in the list that Pastor David just read. Um, they conclude deacons are focused on practical needs. However, at cities, we don't think that there's any reason to restrict diaconal tasks to simply meeting practical needs, although those are important. Because even in the book of Acts, some of those deacons, like Stephen and Philip, have very fruitful word-based ministry. Stephen gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and he's a deacon. And Philip is a great evangelist, traveling over, evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And so um, there's word-based ministry done by deacons. And so we look at that and we say, that, that's a good pattern. Apostles and these proto-deacons are a good pattern for us as we think about structuring the church. And the uh, deacons engage both in practical needs, food distribution, and word ministry. And so the reason we think that Paul doesn't require deacons to be skillful to teach is that not all deacons will teach, whereas all pastors must teach. So some deacons do practical tasks only, and some deacons, though, could do both. Now, what does all of this have to do? How, how do we cash this out at cities? What we say is deacons, as pastoral assistants, assist the pastors in caring for the church by accomplishing specific tasks as assigned by the pastors and approved by the congregation. So both of those are important here. We the pastors identify tasks and we say, we need somebody to do this. And then we identify someone to do it and we put them forward. And then the congregation says, yes, that's a good task. That's a good person for it. Let's go. And that includes some churchwide tasks like managing finances. David Olson is our deacon for finance. Or it includes things like um, assisting and implementing child care. Uh, Aaron Horn among his, he also leads a community group, but also assists me in managing our child care. It also includes hospitality. Up until recently, we had a deacon for hospitality. Um, and then it can include narrower tasks, not church-wide, but more narrow, like leading community groups. So many of our community group leaders are deacons. And so we see this diaconal role as a flexible one that can be designed to meet the needs of a congregation at various stages of its life. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think um, in 1 Timothy and Titus are the two places in the Bible where we get qualifications for pastors. But Titus doesn't have anything about deacons. It only talks about pastors. Does that make sense? So Titus and Timothy, Paul says, here's what pastors should be. But only in Timothy do we get qualifications for deacons. And you say, why? Why doesn't he do both? Part of the reason, I think, is that the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is, is a much more well-established church and has greater needs. And so he says, you've got pastors. Here's the kind of men they need to be. You've got more needs. Here's, you need some deacons. Whereas in Crete, where Titus is, the church is just getting off the ground. They've got bigger fish to fry than figuring out deacons. They need pastors. So he says, let's find some pastors first, and then presumably as the church grows, more needs will be identified, more tasks, and then the pastors can assign those to deacons. So in sum, what's the diaconal task? Deacons assist pastors in caring for the church by accomplishing specific tasks at the pastor's direction. That's what a deacon 
does. So what kind of person must a deacon be? Well, there are very similar qualifications that we saw uh, in the pastors last week. So deacons must be dignified. That's the same as respectable. It's a synonym for respectable in chapter 3, verse 2. They must not be double-tongued or insincere. They must not be addicted to wine nor greedy for money. All of those are similar to the negative commands for pastors in chapter 3, verse 3. It doesn't say anything about deacons being required to teach or being skillful in teaching, but it does say that deacons must hold the faith with a clear conscience. So what that means is not all deacons will be expected to teach, though some, like Stephen, might. But every deacon must love and understand sound doctrine if they are to be an officer in the church. That's why in our church, both our pastors and our deacons must wholeheartedly embrace and love our affirmation of faith, our leadership affirmation of faith. More than that, these deacons must be tested first and found blameless before they do their deaconing. Just as Paul said earlier, pastors should not be new converts. We need to see some proven character over time. And that's why some of our community group leaders are not yet deacons. They're undergoing a period of testing and training where we're evaluating, is this person uh, the kind of person that we actually want to stamp with a church office and put forward to the congregation? Uh, the word blameless in chapter 3, verse 10, is just a synonym for above reproach. In fact, in Titus, Paul uses the word blameless for pastors, whereas in Timothy, he uses above reproach. And that means that, pastor, that like the pastors, deacons must be models of maturity, exemplary Christians. And finally, like pastors, deacons must be faithful to their wives, one woman, man, and manage their children and their households well. Leadership in the home is a qualification for their role in the church. And if they deacon well, it's a verb there when it says if they serve as deacons, it's if they deacon well, they gain a good standing, a, a reputation of godliness in the church, as well as confidence and assurance in the faith. So that's the qualifications. Now, before we move to look then at 311, I want to make one more clarification that sets our church, cities, apart from many other Baptist churches, okay? In many Baptist churches, they're structured such that there's a senior pastor and maybe some assistant pastors, and then there's a board of deacons who oversee many of the church affairs. Those of you who were with us when we um, were, we almost merged with First Baptist Church, they were structured that way. They had two pastors, and then they had a board of deacons that managed a lot of things in the church, things um, like finances, building maintenance, committees in the church, pastoral search process. The deacons did all of that. In our view, those kind of deacon boards are basically functioning as elder boards, they call them deacons, but they're doing the work of pastoring and overseeing. They're exercising the kind of authority that the Bible gives to elders and pastors. But those churches call them deacons because some of the, the people on those uh, councils are not skillful to teach and never do. And so it's their way of getting around the aptitude to teach, but we don't. So in other words, they're, they're separating the teaching office from the overseeing office. And we don't think you should do that. Paul wants to keep those together. 
So at cities, there is no board of deacons. There's a team of pastors. The deacons, as I said a minute ago, are appointed to do specific tasks by the pastors, approved by the congregations, um, and, they, and they are focused on those specific tasks. And that's going to be important in a minute. So now then, verse 11. So in the midst of describing the qualifications for deacons, Paul does something he doesn't do in the pastor's uh, passage. He gives a short list of qualification for wives or women. And so Christians throughout history have wondered and debated, what, what's Paul doing here? What, why introduce the wives or women? And, and a big part of the reason is that Paul simply says, likewise, and then he uses the word gunaikos. It's the Greek word gunaikos. Now, that word gunaikos could mean women in general. Like in chapter 2, verse 11, when it says um, the, the women should dress modestly, it's just the word gunaikos. So it could be just women. On the other hand, in chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 12, when it says one woman man, it's the word gunaikos, which means wives. So it's not clear who Paul has in mind. And there are two main views with some kind of subcategories underneath, but I'm just going to stick with two because it's simpler. The first view, which is reflected in the ESV translation, which was just read, is that Paul is referring to the wives of deacons in chapter 3, verse 11. So, and then the second view is that Paul is referring to deaconesses, that is, to women who also serve in the church in some kind of official capacity. So let me take both of those. On the first view, the reason that Paul mentions deacon wives, but doesn't mention elder wives earlier, is because deacons don't oversee the church as a whole, but instead have these particular tasks. And often these tasks would be tasks where a husband and wife would work together. And the, the kind of situation you might think of would be the Priscilla and Aquila husband-wife team who are serving the church in various ways. And so because the wives will be assisting their husbands in deaconing, Paul says, here's some qualifications for deacon wives. Although I'll just insert here, um, there are a number of commentators, John Calvin notable among them, who think that the qualification for wives here is both deacon and elder wives. Paul just puts it here rather than earlier. So you should just know that's a subcategory of what this passage is doing. Now, let me give you four brief arguments for that view, that these are deacon wives. Number one, the word likewise. It says likewise wives. Um, this indicates Paul's talking about an additional category of person, not a subset of the deacon, uh, the office of deacon. So in verse 8, Paul says, likewise deacons, and that signals he's shifting. He's moving from talking about pastors to talking about something else. So again, when it shows up in verse 11, the word likewise is, I'm talking about something else. So that's one argument. Um, He's talking about a different category. Number two, Paul says a deacon must be a one-woman man. But he doesn't say anything about these women or wives being one-man women. We don't, normally, that's not, we don't normally say that. But Paul, and, and this is surprising because later in the book, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul does use the phrase one man woman about widows. When widows are going to become involved in some kind of ministry, he says they need to have been one man women. Still weird. 
no matter how many times. It still sounds funny. Um, so because of that, Paul, so the, the, the idea is Paul doesn't say one man, women, because it's clear he's not, he's talking about the wives of the guys he just said. That's the second argument for why these are wives, not deaconesses. Third, Paul uses the word gunaikos twice in chapter three. That word refers to wives, and therefore it's the most likely meaning in uh, verse 11 as well. Put another way, here, here's another way to put that. Paul could have used the feminine word for deacon. Okay, so the word deacon has a masculine form and a feminine form, like many words in Greek. So uh, he says, diakonoi, that's masculine, and he, he could have said diakonai, that would have been feminine, but he doesn't say diakonai, he uses the word gunaikos, which would, could mean wives. So finally, um, when he gives the character qualifications, dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things, he doesn't give any kind of testing. He doesn't say, whereas with the, uh, the others, he says, let them be tested first or don't let them be a new convert. And so if church officers are in view, if this is an official office, we would expect some kind of testing for the women as well, but there's not because they're not the ones in the office. They're sort of the wives of those that are in the office. So those are four reasons for interpreting this verse 11 to refer to wives, not deaconess. Okay, now switch. <laughs> Okay, here's four arguments for seeing these as deaconesses, not wives. Number one, if Paul intended to refer to wives, why doesn't he talk about wives of pastors explicitly, right? If, if the character of a deacon's wife matters for his deaconing, doesn't the character of a pastor's wife matter for his pastoring? Paul doesn't give requirements for pastor's wives because he's not talking about wives at all. He's talking about women who serve as deacons. Number two, because the role of deacon is a role of service and not of oversight or governance, it's totally fitting and appropriate for women to fill it. The reason that only qualified men can be pastors is because pastors lead and feed. They teach and exercise authority as over the church as a whole. Deacons don't. And there's, thus, there's no reasons to restrict the office to qualified men. Number three, the qualifications of the women uh, are bookended by references to deacons. Like Paul doesn't leave. He comes back around. So in verse 8, he talks about deacons. Then verse 11, you get the women. And then verse 12 picks right back up with deacons. He's, so Paul's saying, I haven't left talking about deacons. I've just specified that there's men who serve as deacons and then women who serve uh, in the diaconal role. <clears throat> Finally, number four, this is an argument from outside the passage. In Romans chapter 16, verse one, Paul refers to a woman named Phoebe. And he says, she is a deaconess of the church in centriae. So he uses the word diakonos in the feminine form. So it's the feminine form of the word diakonos. And Paul says, She's a deaconess of the church in Centriar. And so, not only do we have qualifications, we have an example in the Bible of someone who's, been, who's deaconing, a woman who's deaconing, and therefore Paul is giving the qualifications for women like Phoebe here in 1 Timothy. So those are the arguments. Now, here's the question, right? You want to know, drum roll please, right? No. Where do the pastors land? Where does the pastors of this church land? And the truth is, 
we don't all agree. Some of us believe that Paul is talking about deacon wives in this passage. And some of us believe that he's talking about deaconesses in this passage. And no matter which side we come down on, among the eight of us, none of us are 100% certain in our interpretation. Like it's 60, 40, 70, 30, where we can see the validity of the other side. It's not a slam dunk. It's a hard passage. At the same time, there are a number of other factors beyond this particular passage that we do agree on. So let me give you those. Number one, we all agree that Phoebe is mentioned in the New Testament and that she's called a diaconi. And it seems, and it's possible that Paul simply means that she's a servant in the general sense, like all Christians are servants. But he says she's a deaconess of a particular church. And that seems to imply something more specific. In other words, he doesn't just say Phoebe is a servant of Christ. That would sound more like everybody's one of those. But Paul says she's a deacon of the church in Centuriae, which implies some more kind of formal role in that church. Number two, in the generation after the New Testament, so after the apostles have died in that next generation, we have writings both from Christians and from non-Christians. And both of them refer to ministra. Now that's a Latin word, but it's a Latin word that is a possible translation of the Greek word deacon. And there are ministra, that's the feminine form, uh, uh, women who would be involved in church life, some of whom were even martyred for their faith. That's why we know. So non-Christians are talking about, we killed a couple of ministra. And these women would shepherd and catechize other women in the church, children in the church, care for widows in the church, assist with tasks that men could not do, like um, helping with the baptism of women in the first, in the early parts of the church, um, baptisms were done naked, like you were baptized naked. Um, so yay, cultural change, right? <laughs> um, like that one's not in the Bible. There's no mandate. So we can kind of, based on creation pattern, express like scripture, apply, wisely, prudently apply. Okay, that's important. But because that's how they did it in the first century, who was going to be assisting the women during the baptism? Well, the, the ministra or the deaconesses would. Number three, we already have a woman serving in an official role in our church, Erica Foster. We just don't use the word deaconess for it. We, she's our coordinator. But that's a title and it's an official role. So some of our questions through all of this have been about titles. Would deaconess for women's discipleship be a better and more fitting biblical title for what Erica does? And if so, should we bring her before the congregation to get your approval in the same way that we do when we bring a new community group leader, deacon forward? That's the third thing that we all agree on as pastors. And finally, as we consider the role of deacon at cities, we don't have a deacon board that exercises authority over the whole church. Instead, Deacons are task-specific roles. And we know from Genesis 2 that Adam, while Adam was created first and therefore is the head of his family, Eve was created as a helper or an assistant, as someone who was made to assist Adam in the task uh, that they were both assigned. And thus that pattern in Genesis 2 influences how we think about an official role for qualified women. So here's the bottom line. 
while the pastors may not agree on the exegesis of 1 Timothy 3. We, we, we tried, we had long conversations with Bibles open. It's, all, it's real fun when, when the pastors get, sometimes it's sidetracked. We have business to attend to and it's like, Bible's out, here we go. And we dive in and we're debating what it means. We did that, but we never resolved it together. We do agree on the value and propriety and fittingness of an official role for qualified women in the church to serve in task-specific ways. We already have a few women who are doing this. Erica's one. Amelia Schumann is another who assists me in childcare. More than that, we've been encouraged by the kind of teaching and equipping that Erica has been doing over the last year through our women's gatherings and other initiatives. And the pastors have been dreaming about some fresh initiatives for women at this church. And Erica has been dreaming about some fresh initiatives for the church. And we're planning to get together to talk and compare notes and think about how we can better serve and uh, the, the women at this church in various ways. And, that whether, and then the question is whether such initiatives would be helped by having additional women serving in that Phoebe-like official capacity. So that's what we're agreed on. And as we identify those additional tasks, 1 Timothy 3 is a great place to go to identify qualified women. So for example, we got four qualifications, right? Dignified, that's the same for deacon and deaconess. If, that's, if this is deacon, deaconess, it's the same. It refers to respectability in the way a woman carries herself, especially in the way that she dresses. It's the same word that showed up in chapter 2, verse 9 about her, her, a woman's, woman's apparel. Number two, not slanderous. This is the word diabolos. It's where we get the word devil. The idea is that a deaconess should not slander or falsely accuse others. She should speak words of life and encouragement, not destructive words from the shadows. And what's interesting to me about this, if, you, if, if, we're, if it is deacons and deaconesses, which again, I'm saying we're, we're disagreed as pastors, but these are good qualifications regardless, both deacons and deaconess have a qualification specifically to do with their speech. Deacons should not be double-tongued. The women should not be slanderous. Now, this is significant. I, as, I th as I was meditating on it, I was like, this is important. And here's why. Um, deacons and deaconesses are officers of the church, but they're not the primary leaders or overseers of the church. Pastors are. But in any organization or body, whether it's your, a business, whether it's your home, whether it's a church, one of the chief ways that that kind of second tier of leadership can wreck the organization as a whole is by undermining the primary leaders with ungodly speech in the shadows. And so Paul says, when you're trying to find deacons or deaconesses, men and women to serve in that, in that task-specific way, Make sure you've chosen people who don't speak out of both sides of their mouth, that don't make accusations, that don't slander others. Because if you put that kind of person in an official role, watch out. Third, sober-minded. This qualification is shared with the pastor, pastors earlier in the, in the chapter. This is level-headedness. This is a refreshing clarity about reality, a steadiness in the face of trials. Finally, faithful in all things. I think this is the equivalent of being above reproach, being blameless. These women should have been, uh, to fill this kind of role, should have been faithful in marriage or in mothering or in their singleness 
or in their widowhood. It doesn't, whatever station of life, they should have been faithful in all of it. Across the board, model of godly femininity and maturity. That's the kind of woman that Paul commends to serve and assist the church. Now, still a lot of questions. Still a lot of questions. Um, Like if deacons are assigned a specific task, what are the specific tasks that we have in our church at this time? And would those tasks be served by an official capacity? Because here's, this is important. This is a big thing for us as pastors. Many of you, both men and women, serve this church in countless ways and you don't have a title. You were not brought forward and approved by the congregation. You're simply serving, deaconing, it's the same word, right? The church. And we want lots of that. We want more and more of that. But there are tasks in which a formal title and official stamp of pastoral and congregational approval would be really helpful. And so we need to know what are those tasks. And this is where that principle that I talked about earlier becomes really important. That's why I spent so much time on that statement about nature, scripture, culture. Let me read that statement again. The structuring and ordering of God's household, the church, is based on a wise and prudent application of God's design and creation as expressed and clarified in the word of God and is designed to both protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. This means as we move forward, God's design in creation as expressed and clarified in scripture still forms the basis of our attempts to wisely and prudently put God's house in order. Certain tasks for qualified women are obvious to us. For example, the kind of Titus II ministry that Erica is leading is one that we want to expand and and enlarge. And that's a prime candidate for where we would raise up women to lead and teach in that task. On the other hand, there are certain tasks in this church that we assign male deacons to do that would be inappropriate for us to to assign a deaconess to do particularly community group leadership. The reason for that is because community group leaders organize and mobilize groups within the church for mission, and they often teach and lead both men and women. And therefore, it's fitting and appropriate in light of God's design in creation and what Scripture teaches that community group leaders should be qualified men. And then, so that's, there's clear tasks that we think... Women, this, is great. this would be a great task if we, have, if we need it. This one would not be. And then there's a bunch that are in the middle that we're still trying to sort. There are other tasks in which the principle of nature, scripture, and culture becomes relevant but doesn't fully resolve everything. It's a starting point and we want to keep it in mind but we have to actually press deeper in seeking God's wisdom in how to structure this church for his glory at this time. And there's probably a lot more questions. And answering them and implementing them will take time and wisdom because the biblical questions are complicated. The application questions are complicated. It's all very complicated. And that brings us to the table. This table is not complicated. It's not. This table is very, very simple and straightforward. It's a table of rest and comfort. Jesus invites his household, the church, the church of the living God to dine with him. All of us, older men, 
Older women, younger men, younger women, church officers, lay people, all of us are welcome at the table of Jesus. All of us are partakers of his grace. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. The pastors can come as we prepare to serve the bread. This is one of the things that we, uh, the deliberate steps that we've made is that it's our pastors that serve this meal to you because we want to serve you. That's why we say every week, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.